Welcome to The Gamble and the Glory, where we hear founders tell the story of growing their companies to become industry leaders within the sports betting, fantasy, and iGaming industry. The Gamble and the Glory is presented by Segev LLP, a full solutions law firm purpose-built for the gaming and betting industry. With decades of experience and a truly global reach, Segev LLP is your go-to expert for legal solutions for all challenges commonly faced by companies from every industry vertical, including payments, blockchain, esports, affiliates, data, and more. If you need help with private equity funding, public markets financing, licensing, intellectual property, mergers and acquisitions, commercial deals, or other business needs, this is your team and it's what they do. Whether you're just getting started or have already scaled to become a stalwart of the industry, discover how Segev LLP can add value to your business and help you achieve your goals. Learn more at www.segev.ca. All right, so we're back with episode two of The Gamble and the Glory, where we talk to founders that have grown their companies to become industry leaders. For this episode, I'm really pumped to welcome Jason Trost, who is the founder of one of the largest betting exchanges in the world, Smarkets. Jason, welcome to the pod. I know it's late afternoon for you in Europe where you are, but it's only 7 a.m. for me on the West Coast of North America here. And I'm notoriously useless this early in the morning, so no pressure, but I am counting on you to carry us through this one. How's everything going on your end since uh, we saw each other in Vegas a few weeks ago? Yeah, not too bad. I'm still living the glow. I, I was super lucky to go to the U2 concert. You know, after the fact, I just sort of realized how lucky I was. Just such a unique experience and one of the great things about Vegas and the USA going on right now. Yeah, 100%. The visuals from that show were pretty epic. Uh, I was pretty bummed to have missed it. I had the opportunity to go, but I could only do so much during my time in Vegas. So I had to miss it. But uh, yeah, I got a little bit of FOMO over here if uh, you were able to make it to U2. So look, um, Excited to have you on here, Jason. Lots I want to talk with you about. I worry we're not going to have enough time, but we'll do our best here just to get started. For anybody that's not familiar with you or Smarkets, can you just give us a bit of an introduction? Tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your background up until the time you started Smarkets. Yeah, of course. So I'm 42 years old. I'm Jason. I'm American. I studied computer science. And when I graduated from university, I saw websites that would let people trade the presidential election. I was and still am a huge political junkie. I follow politics way more than than is healthy. And the site was called Intrade and Trade Sports. And I thought for such a cool concept, I couldn't understand how it worked. And I had a trading background, a computer science background. So you would think have the perfect background to kind of understand this new modality of a prediction market. Uh, But it was so confusing to me. And I thought that there's got to be a better way to do this. And then one of my best friends from undergrad was living in London and said there's a company called Betfair. Instead of trading the presidential election, they trade sports. But similar kind of story, very unintelligible interface, very expensive transaction fees, very wide bid offer spreads. And so coming from finance, my co-founder and I decided, well, the event trading industry, sport trading industry could definitely use financial technology. And that was the window for Smarkets. So Smarkets is a B2C company. We have two main products. We have a brand called Smarkets, which is a traditional betting exchange where you can go on and place limit orders on either the buy side or sell side. And we also have an SPK product, which takes the best prices from the exchange and puts them into a simple, easy to understand interface, which is designed to compete more sort of with your traditional retail offerings, your SkyBets, Bet365, DraftKings, and the like. Our main market is the UK, and we have licenses in the UK. Ireland, Malta, Sweden, and Indiana and Colorado. 
Nice. And again, for people listening, Jason, that are just trying to sort of understand the scale of this market's business, can you maybe talk about sort of the, the scale of the business and where it sits within the wider scheme of things in the industry? I don't know if you can sort of speak to customer numbers or, you know, betting volume or revenue, things like that, but whatever you can do to sort of contextualize the business in its current state. Yeah, we have about 100,000 customers. Like I said, everything's mainly concentrated in the UK, but 100,000 customers globally around a 20 million pound revenue business annually. Let's go back to the origins of it again. I mean, as you say, you sort of came from the, the trading and finance world. Like recall back to, I guess, what was it, 2007? You started the business. Is that around, right? Yep, that's right. Cool. Yep. So yeah, like, you know, get in the DeLorean, go back to that time. Like think about where you were at that time, I guess, in your life. And I guess just taking that leap into starting your own thing, right? How do you sort of think about the development of your own entrepreneurial roots? And, and like, what was that journey like for you kind of stepping into this this world of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think if you go back further between, you know, I started SmartKids when I was 26. And if you rewind the clock to even elementary school, middle school, I think a combination of my dad putting the idea into my head about starting a business. My dad was always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but ended up working for, you know, he did a few, he joined a few startups and ended up working for Big Pharma at the end. But he always wished that he had a chance to start his own business. That kind of planted the seed in my head. And also, you know, one thing that I think Europe is missing is these kind of like iconic role models. And I, you know, from a very young age, I knew who Steve Jobs was, I knew who Bill Gates was. And these guys were just very strong icons of what was possible. And, you know, even take Bill Gates, you know, very sort of geeky, sort of uncharismatic guy who's able to build this big company, even in the 80s and 90s was still quite a thing. And so I always had this idea that I wanted to, to be an entrepreneur. I never knew quite what. During college, my dad's a physician, and he had some kind of algorithm that would let you diagnose lab test results. Long story short, I took that, tried to commercialize it. So I did my first startup using some of my dad's IP in the diagnostic medical space and made a little bit of money, but nothing crazy, and ended up needing to pay rent, went to work at UBS. And while I was at UBS is where this idea for uh, markets ended up crystallizing. But the story, the reason I was telling you that long story is because I always sort of wanted to be an entrepreneur. I think, you know, they, there's often the debate, are entrepreneurs created or are they born? And I think, at least in my perspective, I was more on the born side. Maybe you could argue that my dad pushing me down that path was instrumental, but I would argue that, you know, I always had the crazy risk-taking gene. I was always the one who wanted to raise their hand. I'm fearless in the face of risk, and I, I always knew that I wanted to do something wild and crazy. Not specifically in sports betting. I mean, almost quite the contrary. Like I never intended to be in the sports betting industry per se, but I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then I think the smartest opportunity presented itself, right time, right place, right co-founder. And that's why I took the jump into smartkids. I can ask you to sort of stay in that time period and think about, I guess, the, the initial years of smartkids, right? So if you again, think back to that time, how were you thinking about your go-to-market strategy and just approaching the market? I mean, you mentioned... At that time, you know, Betfair had been online for, I don't know, whatever it was, five, six years or something like that. And, you know, it was trying to sort of introduce the exchange betting concept to the UK market. So, you know, you're there now a few years later with SmartKids trying to bring it to market to compete with Betfair. Like, what was your mindset at the time about approaching the market, go-to-market strategy? And I guess, what did you learn in the first five years of SmartKids that maybe sort of had set the trajectory for the following 10 years? I think I had the right combination of extreme hubris with extreme work ethic. And I think that combination let me sort of grind it out. Like, you know, one of my strengths, I guess you would call it, is I've never, ever, ever doubted that I would be successful in this endeavor. And borderline hubris and borderline arrogance, for sure. And I think that, 
even you know from 2007, we started to turn the corner probably 2014. So you can call seven years in the tech world, you call that in the wilderness. So we were in the wilderness for seven years, meaning we almost had no money. We were, it was existential almost month in, month out. You know, our P&L would go up and down. Like I, I knew what everything costs in our bank account. And it was just such a, you know, they talk about getting ramen profitable. And I was absolutely obsessed with that. You know, it's seven years trying to compress that down into, four, you know, in a four minute answer, but it was all this sort of cliche startup horror stories. You know, we had an office. I didn't pay rent for a year because I got, I figured out I could get free, uh, basically a free loan from my investor because I knew they weren't going to call the loan. And so, you know, we got free rent for a year. We ended up staying another place. The tax man visited us. You know, we've kind of had so many more stories about going through the wilderness. But I think what the go-to-market strategy was, you know, you have an arrogant, if not capable, 26-year-old who wanted to attack this very competitive market. And you just sort of like, you know, it's cliched, but it's a little bit like the um, the saying, like, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And you just start by starting. And, you know, we just tried a million different things and three of them worked. And so one of our early successes was there's a guy by the name of Guido Fox in the UK, who's kind of like a, a Matt Drudge in the US, you know, kind of a conservative blogger. We did a political betting around him that kind of got us some early notoriety. And another path that we ended up getting a lot of customers with a partnership with a company called The Gambling Times, which was a company that helped people do match betting or, or you, you know, what is now called match betting. And this was a market I had no idea existed and we kind of lucked into that. Um, but we tried anything and everything, and some things worked, some things didn't. You know, slowly, 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 we ended up turning the corner in 2014. Nice. And I mean, you touched upon it already, but I think at least from my perspective and sort of from the outside looking in, like I very much associate markets for its political betting markets. And you talked about your, your sort of love for politics. And I guess my question is, like, was it intentional to sort of design markets to be much in the middle of, of political betting markets? Or sort of do you think that sort of emerged organically or like, how did that all, I guess, come about? And I guess my other question would be like, you know, what role do you think prediction markets like markets play in the modern political landscape? Well, the quick answer to the last question is almost nothing. I mean, I would say prediction markets have a very small role in society. But going back to the founding vision, so, you know, I, I was 2003, four when I came across Intrade and it was the George Bush, John Kerry election and I was obsessed with it and following it every day. And I just noticed that, Prediction markets really uh, summarize the news amazingly well, 24 hours a day. And you could see the quantum of, you know, Bush would say this, Kerry would do this, and you could see the market moving in real time. And I thought, my God, how, how powerful is this as a concept and how underutilized is, is this in a society? So part of the reason we do politics is one of our founding, you know, the vision or the, the mission, if you like, was to take betting markets and apply it to real world events. There's a lot of science behind this, but there is there is a lot of validity to one of the best ways to prognosticate the future is the betting market. So if you ever watched uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You got three lifelines. What was the best lifeline? It was ask the audience, bar none, right? And the genius of this concept called wisdom of crowds, which is not my name, I forget who coined the term, but the wisdom of this idea of wisdom of crowds is that if you have enough diverse audiences giving their opinion about something, the average opinion is going to be pretty close to the correct opinion, which is why the magic of ask the audience works when, you know, a lot of people don't know the answer to the question, but the wisdom of crowds will figure out the answer to the question. You know, it's not perfect. Asking the audience gets it wrong, but 
I don't know how correct it was, but I would guess 80, 90% asked the audience was the right lifeline, you know, the most correct lifeline, if you will. And prediction markets, betting markets really tap into this. And that's why we spend a lot of time on politics. Now, unfortunately, the business model sucks for prediction markets. The reason being that uh, one of the things I've learned that people really want to bet on stuff that is regular and that they have a strong opinion on. So a good example is the Olympics. Almost nobody bets in the Olympics, but it's a very high, you know, a lot of people watch the Olympics, but almost everybody bets on the Saturday football or the Saturday soccer or NFL, you know, because they feel like they know Arsenal is going to blah, blah, blah against Chelsea, blah, blah, blah. Whereas besides Usain Bolt, very few people probably can name very many Olympians. And so just like People don't want to bet on things that they don't understand. And also, unfortunately, major political events don't happen very often. So like the, the quintessential one is the presidential election or which party is going to be in power in the UK. And these happen every four and five years, uh, respectively. So it's not necessarily a moneymaker. It's almost a loss leader. But I do think that there's a huge untapped potential for prediction markets to play a role in society as a news source, as a way to guide people in the future. And we're playing a small part in that. And that Part of the reason we do politics is the reason we founded the company is to take the power of a betting market and make it useful beyond somebody just trying to make a return on a trade. Got it. I want to talk a bit about the smartest product mix as well. I mean, you sort of outlined at the start here, there's the core exchange, but then you also have a fixed odd sports book, which pulls the best prices from the exchange. And, you know, Betfair did the same thing. And my understanding of their scenario is they did that very much in response to the complexity of the exchange and the fact that, you know, there is a fairly high bar to be able to sort of navigate an exchange and understand a lot of the mechanics of it. And thus, you know, it's not really a mass market product in that regard. And their fixed odds sports book was very much sort of their response to that. And I guess I'm curious from your perspective, Jason, like, was it a similar story with Smarkets or sort of what was the driver to launch that second product? And I guess ultimately simplify that user experience. Yeah, I would argue that the exchange interface does not need to be complicated. So I would cite probably E-Trade and Robinhood and other popular, I'm not sure what the equivalent would be in the UK, but day trading, if you like, is very popular in the United States. And, and a lot of companies have figured out how to get retail investors to day trade on an exchange. I think what happened was Betfair was the by far the pioneer of exchange wagering globally, and they dominated the category. They still dominate the category. And they created this very, very strong look and feel, this concept of backing, this concept of laying, the way they display the order book. And I think it doesn't make any sense and it's very poorly designed. And because when you're going to market, you were talking about going to market strategy, you can create a new market, you can resegment a market. There's different business models. And we decided we we're going to resegment the market. That is, we wanted to take customers from Betfair rather than finding people who are not betting and going to bet with us. We wanted to take habitual betters from Betfair and move them to us. So we took notes from their user interface. And I think the sum total is if you put the user interface of Smarkets or Betfair in front of a generally intelligent person, they won't understand it. It's very esoteric and unnecessarily complex. Now, so we have wanted to redo the user interface from the exchange, but you kind of get stuck in this, you know, when you're a startup, you have to choose to do so many things. And instead of trying to iterate the exchange at the risk of alienating the hardcore exchange users who are used to this order book like this and the spec and lay bit like this, and instead of trying to have a dumbed down interface, which Betfair tried for years uh, unsuccessfully to kind of have a, a skin on top of the exchange that made it simpler, we decided Look, most of the UK market wants a sportsbook experience. 
Let's not mess with the exchange interface that's been working for us for 10 years. Let's just jump to the sort of the sportsbook interface. And that's what led us to go down to this. Now, I think the big difference of what we've done with what Betfair did is we built our sportsbook to sit directly on top of the exchange where, as far as I understand, the sportsbook on Betfair was completely disconnected. So I think, unfortunately, Betfair has not done a lot to leverage the sort of the power and base, if you like, of their exchange model, where I think we did the right thing by building SBK on top of the exchange. But that was the rationale for doing that. I kind of think about it a little bit like an Audi Volkswagen. They're built on the same platform, but the Volkswagen's more for your everyday driver and your Audi's more for your, I guess, your more high-end driver. Where Smarkets is designed for more the that pro that wants to buy and sell, and SBK is for the everyday punter that wants uh, good prices. Gotcha. And I guess for your UK business anyways, which I think is probably your largest market, how does it break down exchange versus sportsbook? I mean, where are you seeing the most traction within the market? I think now it's 70, 30, 70 exchange, 30 SBK, but SBK is by far where our growth is coming from. So SBK is growing month on month and the exchange is basically flat. And I guess speaking of growth, I, I want to just talk about the, the U.S. for a minute here. So, I mean, let's let's back up to, to 2018 and the repeal of PASPA. Like, what were some of the internal conversations you guys were having around the time of PASPA's repeal? And what was sort of your original strategy for the U.S. market as you thought about it back then? Well, I think with the benefit of hindsight, I, I really screwed up our <laughs> strategy in the U.S. So I don't know. I want to relive the... I think we took a very sort of like, this is cool, but very... Um, We've never been a company that has raised tons of money. So up until PASPA repeal, Smarkets, you know, we were founded in 2007. And as of 2018, we had raised $5 million, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. And if you look at the nearest biggest competitors, so you had FanDuel, DraftKings. I believe FanDuel had raised $580 million at that point, And DraftKings had something similar. So you're talking about our competitors have raised a billion dollars between them. And we've raised $5 million. Um, just to put things into perspective. And so we've never really had this sort of land grab mentality. So we never we never had a land grab mentality. We also never had an M&A mentality. We never wanted to sell out our technology or just sort of, you know, kind of hit the exit button. So like, I think if we wanted to do those two things, that was the right opportunity to be thinking about both of those. But I would say we were very sort of We've always been organic, we've always been hustlers, and we've always been sort of bottom up. And that was the approach that we took in the US market. Now that that approach has worked and not worked. So the part that has worked is we kind of kept our company clean. We didn't get over our skis. I think uh, a lot of companies got over the skis. For example, PointsBet and FubuBet and WinBet and all these companies that have kind of exited from the market that spent a lot of money. You know, one of the um, big things that PointsBet did was they signed up a huge amount of very expensive market access deals. And fortunately, we didn't do that. So we didn't have the albatross around our neck. I would say on the downside, we have almost done nothing in the US right now. So we've been caught, I would say quite flat-footed or like on the sidelines. So that could be a pro in the sense that waiting for the second wave to come out. But I would I would give us a, probably a pretty bad grade Compared to the opportunity that's available in the U.S., um, what we were able to do, because that sort of like that bottom up, grinded out mentality doesn't really work in the land of startups are raising $500 million and there's a land rush. So we got kind of bowled over, I would say, in the wave one. But I would say we're still standing, we're profitable, 
And we still have a very unique offering in, in a land of very overfunded competitors that I think have not great products. Smarkets was obviously in the headlines earlier this week and some news that it would halt current efforts in the U.S. So temporarily sort of suspending ambitions there, but is the ultimate goal to sort of more concertedly attack that market at some point? Or are you just sort of going to take a wait and see approach or where's the sort of head at right now with it all? Yeah, well, I think that was basically a riff off our annual report. But, you know, if we, we went live in Colorado, I forget the exact date, but I want to say two or three years ago, and we've done almost zero marketing from the beginning. And that was always intentional in the sense, you know, marketing's always been incredibly expensive and we wanted to see how far we get organically. So the answer is not far, not that far. The real reason I think we haven't done that well organically is our product just wasn't up to snuff in the U.S. market. So we've been heads down trying to make the U.S. better, the product better and better for the U.S. market. It's getting pretty close. You know, we added NFL props, I want to say last month, and that was a big thing that was missing. We've added same game parlays and a lot of the sort of the bells and whistles that the, the U.S. audience expects. So it's getting close to kind of really going back out to the market. But up to now, it, you know, it's not recent that we've not done anything in the U.S. I would argue that we've kind of been hands off since the get-go. It's just the, the news has been slow to actually pick up on that, I guess, is what it is. Cool. You know, I guess through my podcast here, like I talked to a lot of founders doing different things within the industry. And I think one observation I have as a pattern across all of them is there does seem to be a little bit of a trend. Um, and obviously, you know, the repeal of PASPA has a lot to do with this and just the dramatic level of investment into the space since the repeal. But there is a lot of new entrants into the space and a lot of them come from like a finance background. And in the conversations I have, I really get the sense from, from many of them that they see the problem space of sports betting being very similar to that of finance and, and financial trading and their mental models, like they can apply a lot of the financial trading principles to sports betting and hit a home run with relative ease. And I think a lot of them are finding it's actually not quite that easy. And I think about you a little bit because you've been, as you say, grinding away for what, like 16 years here, you have a financial trading background that you tried to apply that to sports betting as well. And here you are still grinding away 16 years later. Like, how do you sort of think about that? And I, I guess for some of these like newer folks entering the space from that finance background, like what, what would you say to them, I guess, expectation versus reality? Like what can they actually expect to, to unfold as they try their various pursuits in the space? Well, if, you, if you're an entrepreneur, arrogance is a feature, not a bug. So you, you do have to kind of go into it with blind ambition. You will have no chance to change a, a big industry if you kind of go into it with rational eyes. You do need a little bit of irrational eyes to kind of attack the market. Um, in terms of the financial thing, I, I would say there's really big important differences between finance and sports betting. The number one is the size of the markets and like orders of magnitude smaller. So who knows what the actual number is, but you could probably trade trillions of dollars in the stock market fairly easily over, I don't know how many periods, but to trade trillions in sports betting would probably take you, I don't know, 20 years. Like the liquidity and the amount of dollars that changes hands is very, very small compared to finance. The other thing that's different is there's, there are some financial contracts that are zero sum, but betting is very clearly a zero sum game. So for every dollar made, somebody has to lose a dollar. And that creates a really strong incentive to find a lot of quote-unquote retail money, I guess, or dumb money, if you like, to put into the system. Whereas with finance, it doesn't, or if you want to say stock trading, for example, it's not a zero-sum game, you know, so people can join, enter, and come in at different times, and you don't have to have a dollar in to have a dollar out, um, which kind of makes it a better game to scale, if you like, where sports betting, it's zero-sum, and most bets settle within call it five, six hours. And so you you have this huge need to bring new money into the system, uh, which doesn't really exist in finance. 
And then lastly, I would say that, and this is much to my chagrin, but I'm, you know, when you come from finance, or at least my, the part of finance I came from, like price is so important. Price is the whole game. So like the price that you pay for a stock is more, more important than buying the stock. You know, like your entry price, your exit price is, is the difference between making money and losing money. And there's just this culture in the UK, in the US of like, nobody knows what the true price should be. Nobody knows the edge that they're paying. And part of our mission is to tell them. But, you know, if I'm honest with myself, we've been struggling against that. So many people are getting absolutely ripped off when they place a sports bet and they have no idea. These scamming game parlays, they have 20, 30, 40% margin products on them. And nobody knows that, you know, and it's essentially a database transaction, you know, like, like if I have to pay Ticketmaster 10 pounds to buy my, you know, I'm just like, what the fuck is this shit? And, and that sports betting is absolutely like way, way worse than Ticketmaster with this quote unquote convenience fee. But because it's baked into the price, people don't really know. So that's to say, to summarize, you have an audience that isn't that aware of prices. You have this zero sum aspect, which requires this like heavy churn of money the amount of dollars in the system is relatively small compared to finance. So there are definitely parallels and I, and that's why I'm in this space and that's why I'm excited about this space, but it's not as a, it's not as much of a slam dunk as it might seem from a, you know, if you're like coming from a Jane street or something, you're like, I'm going to do sports betting. It's not like the stock market. Like anybody can jump on the stock. I can create a hedge fund tomorrow and jump on the stock market and I might be good. I might be shit, but at least I will have access to the market. If you want to trade sports, there are very, very few places you can do it. Very few places. And if you're good, you're going to get shut down. And so there isn't this open ecosystem where smart money can just participate like you can in finance. And that's probably, that's one of the things I think the Jane Streets and the, the um, tower trading places really underestimate that getting liquidity is, is actually the hard problem in sports betting. It's not the sort of the financialization of sports betting. And you sort of alluded to it, but I, I would love to get your take on the, the current state of the betting industry in general. And look, I mean, you and I have had a, a few chats now. Like, I really, I don't know you super well, but I get the sense from you, like, you're very idealistic, right? And and I, I know you've got a bit of a romanticism around this idea of competing on price and all of that. So I'm, you, you do have yeah. strong thoughts, but like, what is your like overall take just on like the state of the industry? And you talk about, you know, your 20 or 30% same game parlay products, like, Obviously, what that means in practical terms is the lifetime of a customer, you know, they're going to churn them much quicker, right? And like, that's not healthy and sustainable for the sector. Like, what's yeah. your overall like read on the industry right now? We're just sort of head out with respect to the direction it's headed. Yeah, to me, it bums me out. I would say the state of the industry makes me quite sad because it's pretty big. But to me, it's full of these super dumb, huge marketing companies. And... I think it takes advantage of people. And like I said at the beginning, I studied computer science. One of the things I absolutely love about technology is this endless drive to make things cheaper, better, faster, cheaper, better, faster. And that's the whole, to me, that's the whole gist of society. So, you know, cheaper, better, faster. And, and software is, is good at making things cheaper. It's good at making things better and it's good at making things faster. And I don't see that cheaper, better, faster in sports betting. And that just bums me out. And I think it's a it's a combination of factors. And I, you know, like you said, romanticizing is, is might be a nice way to a charitable way to say I'm like got my head in the clouds. But I still think it's possible. I think 
I like to cite Vanguard that, you know, I, I traded stocks when I was a little kid, you know, mutual funds have been around forever. And this, this company called Vanguard, they have been grinding with low fees over and over again. For those of you that don't know, Vanguard's just sort of an index mutual fund company that charges basement fees, you know, in the, in the single digit, double digit basis point where historically people would charge 100, 200, 300 basis points to trade these products. So I believe that it's possible. And, and indeed, I still think it's coming. But it hasn't been proven yet that the price-sensitive customer will show their uh, market-changing behavior anytime soon. And knowing what you know now with the 16-plus years of, I guess, battle scars building and scaling markets, like knowing what you know now, if, if you could start it all over again tomorrow, what are a few things you, you might do differently than, than you've done thus far? Well, one of the things we ended up building quite by accident was a trading desk. So we were the largest market making firm in the world in sports betting. And so, you know, when I started the firm, I was quite just wanted to be the the pipes, if you like, for the exchange and not be in the risk taking business. And I think if I had a time machine and was going to stay in sports betting, I would have built the trading firm first, because one of the things that we were always short of was money. Uh, so we were always short because we were short of money couldn't hire that many people. And that's part of the reason I'm on year 16, because we have built everything organically in-house. And, you know, sports betting is quite complicated. You have to, if you think about all the components of a sports book, it's crazy, you know, like geolocation, compliance, payments, exchanges, settlement, event data, user interface, loyalty, all these different components we've had to build from scratch. And um, yeah, I would have started by doing the trading aspect first, probably on Betfair and then the other exchanges, and then use that cash flow to fund operations to build the uh, to build the exchange. Nice. And then coming back to the U.S. market, if you look at the landscape right now and look, there's what I don't know a handful or so of, of upstart exchanges with slightly different models. But you know, there, there's exchange models coming to market in a few states. I guess as you just look around, what's your assessment of some of the newer entrants in the exchange space in the U.S. and and just you know, sort of what do you see out there, uh, again, as, as a grizzled veteran of the exchange space now? Well, unfortunately, being based in Europe most of the time, I haven't been able to try them. So just from the outside, I'll say a few things. One, I completely wish them well. I think all ecosystems are more healthy with new entrants. And I think one of the things that gambling and sports betting really, really suffers from is there's not enough new entrants. There, I saw a talk the other day from one of my favorite podcasts, All In Podcasts, and they were talking about how the more regulated an industry is, the more it, it benefits incumbents. And, and sports betting is just rife with regulation. And if you think about it, you know, the biggest companies are, the, the sports betting is dominated by, I want to say, six, seven companies kind of rule the, the industry, or at least the legal side of the industry. And uh, I think regulation is a real big part of that. So I'm encouraged that there's still room for investors to come into. But you could imagine that, you know, we probably could count sports betting operating startups on two hands uh, in the last two or three years. And if this industry weren't regulated, there'd probably be two, three, four hundred. So like that, even though there, there's 10, there really should be three or four hundred based on the size of the opportunity. You know, just imagine Take any other industry in America, like HR software or recruiting software or ad distribution software or cloud providers. You know, there's probably 200 cloud providers in the United States, but there's five places you can go, 10 places you can go place a bet. So I think there's definitely a shortage that they, they have the work cut out against them. Exchanges are, they kind of suffer from, you need a lot of liquidity, depends on how you get that. They also suffer from a lot of people aren't aware of the user interfaces. And I know some of the U.S. Uh, startups have tried different interfaces, uh, which I think is the right thing to do. So I wish them well. I hope they're successful. 
and I'd love to see more more startups in the space. I think it's really I think it's healthy for startup center. Yeah, hundred percent. My my last question on Smarkets specifically, Jason. What's your what's your end game with Smarkets? Right. I mean, you've been at this for sixteen years. I mean, in sixteen years' time, you still want to be grinding it out. Like, where's the puck headed with respect to Smarkets? I like pain. My sport of choice, the sport I was the best at was wrestling. And the interesting thing about wrestling is like, there's no fun. Wrestling is never fun. It's just like, how do you endure the pain? And it's a little bit similar to startups. So it's about managing the pain and, and leaning into it. So th there's two reasons I found it's markets. One is to take betting markets and apply them to popular events, which we've done, but it's not, you know, I would not say it's widespread. And the other reason we founded it was to disrupt the sports betting model. So that's probably like the main thing that I still want to do in this before I move on to my next startup. Like I'm obsessed with this idea that people are getting ripped off. You know, the blended margin in the US right now is say 11%, you know? And like I said, it's just, it's insane. It's insane. People pay 7% a year for a mortgage and everybody's like, that's so expensive. Like they're paying way more for a sports bet. They don't even know. So that is really what I'm focused on of like seeing that get across the line of building a company that is able to prove that the Vanguard model, if you like, is possible in sports betting. And uh, if I'm successful, I will disrupt all these five, six giants that require these huge margins to continue to operate. And the romantic in me still thinks it's possible. Love it. What's your best piece of generic business or life advice you would give to other entrepreneurs that are earlier on in their journey? It's hard to sum it up, but uh, just a few things off the top of my head. You got to mix being humble and arrogant at the same time. I would say, don't be afraid to find a mentor. You know, I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day and, you know, so few people, I think, go out of their way to like try to find a mentor and people love helping people are just starting out. So I'd say find a mentor, grind it out and make something people want. I think a lot of times people get to riff off your word romanticize. They get seduced by their own idea and, and don't listen to what customers are actually asking for. Nice. We're going to park some markets there, Jason. We do have a few more minutes left, though, and we're going to talk podcasting here. You took over the wildly popular business of betting podcast, I don't know, a year, year and a bit ago. Uh, can you just give us, uh, to start with, the quick backstory there of how that all came to be? Yeah, it was quite random. Uh, Jake and I just sort of talked as friends and we'd see each other at a conference. And I look forward to listening to the podcast every week. And, you know, there's a huge break. And I saw him in, I think it's New Jersey SBC or something. And uh, I said, what's going on? And he said, I just had to hang it up. It's too, it's too much, um, too much conflict with my work. And I was like, you know, kind of on a lark. I said, well, I'll take it over. And he said, go for it. So that that was pretty much the short story. So I really, the reason why I wanted to take it over was that you know, if you think about this mission of price transparency and changing the industry, it really has to do with teaching people about what's going on behind the hood, which really kind of overlaps with the business of betting or what happens behind the curtains to make a sports bet possible. That's why I got really excited about that. Unfortunately, um, <laughs> which I didn't know, it's, it's a ton of work to be a podcast <laughs> host. It looks like you just show up once a week and smile and ask a few questions, but it's actually a ton of work. And I kind of underestimated, you know, I, I have a day job of, of running Smarket, so it's a ton of work. But, you know, when I get an ep episode out, I am pretty proud of it. Well, I mean, as, as a fan of the podcast, both before and after he took it over, I'd, I'd like to see more of him. But I, I get yeah. that you're a busy guy and you got a lot going on that probably is uh, more of a priority. But I want to talk a little bit more just about podcasting in general, Jason. Like, sure. 
look, I mean, obviously I, I, I ask people questions once a week in this format, get to meet a lot of people that way. It's interesting, right? Like we were just in Vegas a few weeks ago at G2E and I got people coming up to me there that I've never met before. They introduce themselves like they, they've known me for years, right? And it's like podcasting, you can listen to somebody week in, week out and have never met them, but yet you feel like you, you know them on some level. You, you establish this yep. connection with them. How do you sort of think about that? And I guess it's like, what's your relationship with podcasting, both as a consumer of podcasts? And I know you're a voracious consumer of several of them, um, but also on, as a creator, right? As somebody asking the questions, like what's your I guess, relationship to podcasting? Yeah, I think there's a, especially audio only, I think there's a real intimacy that you get just listening to somebody's voice over and over again. Now, I found that there's two podcasts I, I listen to religiously. One is All In Podcast, which is kind of a tech one but they also cover politics and other uh, political events. The other one is Prof G and he again is tech, but he talks about a lot of different things. And I've listened to, I've listened to it and I've watched it on video and I noticed the intimacy is a lot, lot stronger if you're doing audio only. I think the video is quite distracting. Hmm. Um, So as a listener, um, I think that's where you kind of build the, you feel like you start to know somebody over time, but it's just such an amazing, you know, growing up, I was, always a huge fan of am radio i used to listen to even though i'm kind of more on the left end of the spectrum i love listening to rush limbaugh just like listening to smart people talk about their ideas about stuff even if you disagree with them and you know i often disagreed with rush limbaugh but he was just so interesting to listen to and podcasts are you know it's, it's the next generation of am radio and so we crave human connection and we crave listening to what other people think. One of the things that I've always tried to incorporate in smart is somewhat unsuccessfully is trying to build this idea of a social network alongside trading. And I got the idea from, you know, my first job was a stock trader and people like the people on the trading floor just never shut up about their market, the markets or what they thought about something. You know, if you think about CNBC, it's really a social network for traders before there was Facebook and things. But you basically, old school CNBC was you get traders on there and they give you their opinion. So we crave to know what other people think. And so I crave that as a listener and I'm happy to do it as a podcaster. And I think it's, it's a wonderful medium that really is kind of coming into its own. Yeah, for sure. And like I said before, you know, your podcast, Business of Betting, my podcast, there's, you know, maybe a handful of other ones that sort of cover the business side of, of the wider betting industry. So question to you is what podcast do you think is missing right now? Like what area are we either not covering or like what different format should we be thinking about? Because I mean, there's a lot of these interview based podcasts that cover the industry, which is fine. But, you know, it's maybe not always like the most engaging per se. So like either a topic or like a format, like what do you think is missing right now from the landscape covering the betting industry? The unfortunate part, which I imagine is true for a lot of industries, but it's definitely true for our industry. The most interesting stuff, either the most interesting people or the most interesting topics, people don't want to talk about because it's mm. secret for whatever reason. So one of the people people or groups that I'd love to get on the podcast are betting syndicates and talk about their trading strategies and how they find their alpha and how they collect data. And that would be super interesting to talk about, but nobody, would, none of them want to come on and share their secrets. And so that's one of the frustrating parts is that a lot of the interesting stuff is like remaining behind closed doors. I don't know if there's, I think one of the reasons that All In Podcast and Prof G are so successful is because they'll do two or three tech topics. They won't beat it to death, but they give themselves the freedom to go outside of tech. So both of them will talk about politics. Both of them will talk about 
you know, in Scott in Scott Galloway's example, he talks a lot about young men mentoring people. He talks about mental health. He talks about personal finance. The All in podcasts, they talk a lot about politics and they talk about a lot about the government and geopolitical issues. And so it kind of gives them space to kind of be interesting outside their sort of area of expertise. And I've thought myself, like, how would you mix in, you know, FanDuel's uh, earning report with the Israel Hamas <laughs> situation? I don't know how you would do that. But I think if you could get an opinion show going where you sort of half talk about betting, half talk about just general interesting stuff, that could be kind of interesting. But I don't know if there's enough of a hook there to kind of get that. But those are those are my two things that I think are missing from the ecosystem. Final question for you. Uh, this one might sound familiar to you because it's the one you asked all of your guests at the end of business of betting. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, my default answer, you know, the answer I've always had is president. I've always been interested in politics. I've always been interested in sort of geopolitical issues, foreign policy, those kinds of things. So, you know, a career in politics is something that I'm very interested in being when I grow up. I would say the second big thing I'm interested in is doing a, another startup. I, I love creating companies and, you know, I've been really blessed to, even though I'm on year 16 and, and like, you know, I wish it went a little bit faster and we were a little bit more successful. But that said, if I were fair on myself, we've been incredibly successful. We've generated, I don't know what it is, $150 million worth of cumulative revenue over the last 10 years. Like that's inc incredible. You know, we've raised 30 million and generated uh, 150 million of revenue that very few startups can say that they've been able to do that. So I'm very proud of that. So I'd love to do it again. So those would be my two answers. Any thoughts as to what space you would want to launch your next startup into, or is it too soon to think about that? I'm really into the electric car movement. I'm into energy. I'm into the idea of taking what we did in sports betting to insurance. So those are some ideas kind of off the back of my head. All right. Well, you got a lot of room to run still with smart kids, so I'll, that's all in the distant future. But look, Jason, I'm uh, going to let you go here, but really appreciate you jumping on and sharing a lot of your journey with smart kids. For anybody listening that uh, either wants to get in touch with you or, or check out your products, can you quickly plug where they can go do all that? Yeah, you can just shoot me an email, jason at smarkers.com, or you can find me on Twitter. I don't tweet very much, but if you send me a DM or something, I can check it out. It's at Jason Trost. Excellent. Thanks a lot for joining, Jason. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.